Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship he desires to have with you. Hey everybody, thanks for being here today. If you're listening in real time, it's May 2020, and we are just beginning to reopen parts of America after much of it has been on a stay-at-home order due to the coronavirus. Where I live this week, we are allowing restaurants to open at 25% capacity and retailers to do the same. It's been a strange couple of weeks, and many of our normal activities have been canceled or delayed. We've been spending a lot more time as a family taking walks and trying to find ways to get exercise and be outdoors. Today's study is about a man who has lived 38 years unable to walk. I can't imagine not being able to use my own two legs, though I know many people live that way. In John 5, we will see Jesus heal this man physically and consistent with past interactions also speak to his spiritual condition. So let's get started. In John chapter 5, our author, John, transitions us to the next story with the following words. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Okay, so in our last episode, we saw Jesus healing a royal official's son in the city of Cana sometime after he had left Jerusalem following the Passover. Most likely, some time has passed, and although our author John doesn't tell us the name of the festival, we're back in Jerusalem. It helps to understand why Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and specifically, he's at the temple. There were several gates in which someone could enter the temple. In this scenario, Jesus is at the sheep gate. There's a pool there with healing properties, so sick and paralyzed people would lay at this pool hoping for healing. Now let's go back to my earlier encouragement in previous podcasts to think like a first century Jew. There are at least three festivals that you're supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. The Passover is one of them, and we've seen Jesus already in Jerusalem for this festival. There is also the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Feast of Pentecost. But regardless, if you're headed back to Jerusalem for a festival, it's likely once you get there, you'll need to purchase an animal for sacrifice. We studied earlier in John chapter 2 how Jesus cleansed the temple from those who were using it as a way to make a profit from the selling of these animals. But there were legitimate places near and within the temple grounds where people could purchase an animal for sacrifice. The Sheep Gate had a pool near it, and the name of the pool varies in different manuscripts, but most Greek manuscripts call it Bethesda, which when literally translated means mercy. So if you're headed to Jerusalem and you arrive at the temple and buy yourself a sheep and head up the steps to where you would sacrifice said sheep, you'll pass by a pool, which is named Mercy. And there you'll see a crowd of people who are sick, paralyzed, destitute. And your heart might be stirred to help them, to offer them mercy. 
there at the mercy pool. And so here we find Jesus and his disciples at the sheep gate. And in verse 3, John tells us, Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. There also may be a second half of this verse and a verse 4 in your version that's set apart with a dash or a note. And it probably reads something like, Waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. The reason this little nugget of information is set apart or perhaps not included is because you don't find these words in the earliest copies of John that we have. That leads scholars to believe that these words were probably added and unlikely to have been a part of John's original inspired narrative. But we know that this belief of the people who were at the pool is true because of the next encounter Jesus has. So let's continue. Verse 5 says, One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So regardless of whether the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are original words of John or not, we can see here that the belief of the people at this pool of water was that if they made it as the first person into the water when it was stirred up, they would be healed. As people are coming into this gate for the festivals, this great crowd is hoping for mercy, either food, supplies, or someone to help them be the first one in the water at the right time. And of all the people in this area, Jesus approaches a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Now we've been doing a stay at home lifestyle for approximately five weeks. We are unable to gather for church, sport events have been canceled, and we are all working and schooling from home. It seems like a really long time, but it is not 38 years. And we have definitely been able to walk around and move about. I cannot imagine laying paralyzed year after year, just one in a crowd of sick and needy people hoping someone would have mercy on me. So Jesus encounters this man and asks him a very direct question. He says, do you want to get well? Wouldn't you think the simple answer to this question would be yes? If I had laid there for 38 years hoping someone would get me into the water at just the right time, I think I would have answered yes. But this man's response makes me pause and consider where his heart is and where mine would have been if our roles had been reversed. Instead of simply saying, yes, I want to be well, he says, sir, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. This man is so caught up in what he believes is the solution to his problem, he can't even acknowledge the simple truth that he does want to be well. All he can focus on is why he can't seem to get well based on his expectation for how healing should occur. Unlike Nicodemus and the woman at the well, Jesus does not enter into a long discourse with this man at this point. Instead, he simply says, Get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. In verse 9, John tells us, Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. This is an incredible miracle. A few summers ago, I had my arm in a cast for three weeks due to an injury in the joint of my thumb. My thumb had to be completely immobilized for those three weeks, as well as my wrist. When I finally had the cast removed, my wrist and thumb were sore, weak, and really difficult to move. It took another week or so for the movement in that hand to feel normal. In that short time of having that cast, my muscles had experienced some atrophy and needed to be rehabilitated into full function. Now, realize this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus commands him to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. And he does. He gets right up, grabs his mat, and starts to walk. Not only was he healed, he was restored to full health and full function. When we ask God to heal us, whether we are looking for physical, emotional, or spiritual healing, he is able to completely heal and completely restore us. There were many other sick and lame people laying there, but Jesus chose this man in particular. Sometimes, God fully heals, and sometimes he does not. We must trust him for the decisions he makes. Remember, if God were small enough for us to fully understand him, he wouldn't be big enough to be God. Our job is not to always figure him out. It's to always trust him. So it would be great if the story ended here. How cool is this? Jesus at the mercy pool in Jerusalem picks out a man and fully heals him so he can walk. I've got some warm fuzzies and a smile on my face. How about you? Well, the story's not over. There are some people who found out about this and they were not happy. The second half of verse 9 says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was cured did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In the earlier chapters of John, we have run into this group of people John refers to as the Jews. This is a specific group of Jewish religious leaders. They are the in-crowd that calls all the shots and creates some of the extra rules and burdens for the masses. In fact, they had this nitpicky law about the Sabbath that you could not perform any work at all. So even picking up a mat would be a crime on the Sabbath. So here's this guy who has laid by a pool for close to 38 years. Surely those who live and work near and in the temple would have known this man. Suddenly, he's walking around the temple carrying his mat. And no doubt, this man is overjoyed at his complete healing and restoration. So up come the Jews, interceding and accusing him of violating the Sabbath by carrying his mat. And the man says, hey, I was told to carry my mat by this guy who healed me. Because really, what other defense did he have? Jesus did say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy obeyed him. Can you just picture the narrowing of the eyebrows and the scrunching of the face by these pious Jewish leaders? 
Who healed you and told you to do this? You see, they were not accustomed to having anyone else calling the shots, doing miracles, allowing work on the Sabbath, etc. I bet they're suspicious at this point. It's Jesus, based on their earlier run-ins with him. But the healed man has no idea. And John tells us that Jesus intentionally slipped into the crowd after healing the man. But Jesus isn't quite done with this interaction. John 14 goes on and says, After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus goes and finds the man he healed to have just one last word with him. Remember, Jesus is fully God and also fully human. So he has the omniscience of God. Omniscience is just a fancy word that means all-knowing. Jesus knows everything, and as he was here on earth, he knew the hearts and the thoughts and what was said, even if he wasn't standing there to witness it. He knows the Jews have confronted this man, and he knows he's at risk of their wrath. But this man's spiritual condition still needs to be addressed. So Jesus finds him and basically says, Listen, you are now physically healed, but don't continue to be spiritually sick as well. You need to turn from your sin before something worse happens. Now, I don't think this is a threat. Like, if you don't behave, I'm going to make sure you experience something worse than paralysis. Jesus does not operate that way. He healed the man at the mercy gate out of complete mercy. He did not demand anything from the man in order for him to be healed. He simply had compassion and healed him. God does not have a tiered system of consequences in which he sits in heaven waiting to smite us with some bad thing if we step out of line. There is no consistent evidence of that anywhere in scripture. So this translation in English should not be taken as if Jesus is issuing a threat. Instead, he's trying to draw a comparison. He's saying, listen, now that you are well, you can see how much better this is than being paralyzed. But if you are spiritually sick and continue in your sin, you won't experience spiritual freedom, which is far worse than your previous physical condition. Eternal separation from God is the worst possible outcome for any of us. Yet that is what happens if we don't place our faith in Jesus for our spiritual salvation. It would be better to be paralyzed for 38 years than it would be to experience separation from God for eternity. Jesus doesn't want this man to miss the spiritual healing that needs to take place. John doesn't tell us if this man really gets the message or not. All we know is that he does report back to the Jews that the man who healed him was Jesus. So now the Jews know. It was indeed Jesus who started all this rabble-rousing on the Sabbath. In verse 16, John tells us, Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Oh, how the plot thickens. The Jews were ticked. 
because Jesus had a man pick up his mat on the Sabbath. So they start plotting and even try to kill Jesus. And then Jesus responds with a claim that God was his father. So to a 21st century Christian, hearing Jesus claim that God was his father doesn't seem like such a big deal. If you've been in church for any amount of time, the idea that God the Father and Jesus the Son, well, it's pretty foundational and not all surprising. But let's think like a first century Jew. There's only God the Father in their minds. Yes, a coming Messiah has been promised, but their focus is on a political salvation. For the Messiah to come and free them from political rule and establish a nation once again like God had done through Moses. They're not looking for a carpenter from Nazareth who broke the rules about Sabbath mat carrying. They are highly offended by what Jesus has said. Essentially, his message was, your petty rules about mat carrying aren't important. God, who is my father and I have work to do, and if we need to do it on the Sabbath, we will. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Jesus goes on for nearly 30 more verses to explain his relationship to the Father and his purpose here on earth. I won't be able to cover all of that in this podcast because I generally like to keep these around 30 minutes or so. But let's tackle the first few principles that Jesus covers in these next few verses. In verse 19, John records the following. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So in these few verses, Jesus defines the relationship between the Father and the Son. Remember, we're reading this through the lens of 2,000 years of church history, and many of us with the advantage of sermons and Sunday school lessons or VBS in the summer, and those things have shaped our understanding of who Jesus was. But this crowd had no concept of the father-son relationship that existed between Jehovah, their God of the Old Testament, and Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth. The first thing Jesus establishes is that the son does not operate independently from the father. He's unable to do anything on his own. So as these Jews have the hair on the back of their neck standing straight up because someone violated their Sabbath law, Jesus is saying, I can't do these things without God's permission. So God the Father gave me permission to heal this man on the Sabbath and to tell him to take up his mat. I can just imagine the Jewish leaders in this crowd with their expressions getting angrier and their blood pressure rising as he's literally telling them, God the Father said, I don't have to follow your laws. The second concept Jesus emphasizes here is that the Father loves the Son. I don't know what your concept of God is from your past or even your present experiences, but if it is anything other than love, I want to really challenge you to search and pray for a deeper understanding of who God is. The God of the Bible is a God of love. He loved us so much, he became a man 
so he could be brutally murdered and take the penalty of our sin. Why? So he can spend eternity with us. You can't call that anything but love. Does God show anger? Yes. Are there wars and bloodshed and strange things recorded in the Bible? Yes, yes, and yes. But all of it has context and purpose. And ultimately, all of the Bible leads to one unifying theme. God loves us. And there's also love between the persons of God. God is the Father. He is also the Son. And he is also the Holy Spirit. He is all three, and all three are God. I'm not going to get into a super long discussion here of this concept, but it's clear in scripture. And here, Jesus is saying there is love between God the Father and God the Son. They are unified. They are one. The claim he's making here that is blowing the mind of these religious leaders is that he, Jesus, standing there in the temple in his robe and his sandals, a 30-something who calls Nazareth his home, he is the son. And then he says he will do greater things than even this. He just made a paralyzed man completely whole. And now he's saying God the Father can raise the dead to life and so can the son. It's like he said, listen guys, not only can I heal paralytics, I can also raise the dead to life just like God the Father can. And then he wraps up this first section by telling them that God the Father has handed over judgment to the Son and that anyone who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father. Oh, this has to be a huge blow to the Jews. They're walking around this temple making rules and procedures that they believe honor God. In their minds, the Old Testament wasn't enough. They needed to heap on extra requirements and tack on additional hoops to jump through. And somehow they thought this would earn them the favor and bring honor to God. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and breaks their rules and has the audacity to say, if you don't honor me, you don't honor God the Father. I'll save the rest of this discourse for my next episode, but I think it's safe to say Jesus did not come to tell the religious leaders of his time that they were doing a good job with all their rules. He came to do the work of the Father. And if that meant talking to a Samaritan woman or healing a paralytic on the Sabbath, his calling from God was more important to him than his favor with men. These interactions with the Jews will continue to build during his three-year ministry. And ultimately, this crowd will see to it that Jesus is crucified over his claims to be God. It can be easy to look back at the Jews and see the error of their ways how they were blind to what was right in front of them, how they were prideful and selfish and foolish. But before we judge too quickly or too harshly, it might be good to ask some questions about our own lives. What matters more? What people think about us? Or what God thinks about our hearts, our attitudes, our words? Which lifestyle is easier? To go along with the crowd? Follow everyone else's rules? Keep the status quo or to challenge beliefs that don't line up with God's word and live out your convictions even when they are unpopular. And I wonder about the healed man. Did he stand in that crowd and listen to Jesus teach? Did he realize Jesus was the son of God and that he had been healed by God himself? Did he repent of his sin? 
Or did he continue in spiritual paralysis even though his body was whole? When he first met Jesus, he was depending entirely on someone to have mercy on him for physical healing. He had placed his hope and his faith and the ability of another person to carry him to the water. But Jesus provided his physical healing and challenged him to live so he could experience spiritual healing. I wonder how often we approach our problems in the same way. Hoping, yearning, searching for a man-made solution, not even realizing when we've been offered something far greater by God himself. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Until next time, be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforTheOrdinaryLife.com.